predestination or election. I don't know what you think of when you hear those words, what comes to mind, what sort of reaction you have to it. I can imagine a Bible study group where the leader says, tonight we're going to look at predestination and half the group goes, yes, here we go. And the other half goes, ah, here we go. What do you think? When I think of predestination, uh, I, I can't help but think of Amber. Uh, Amber called the church office. This is six or seven years ago now. And uh, she called up the office. She said, I, I think I need to go to church. Um, but I, I, what do you do? do? Do I have to bring something? I mean, how, how do you go to church? I don't know. What, you know. No, nah, don't worry. Don't bring anything. Just come along. Uh, six o'clock was the meeting at this particular church. So I rock up and, and we'll sort it out, right? So Sunday comes around, six o'clock. Amber rocked up a little bit late, so we didn't get to chat much. But after the service, we're chatting. And I said, well, what, what brings you to church? I mean, you, you called us up. You. And I was expecting, you know, when someone says they need to come to church, maybe they've, they've suffered something or they're grieving or there's some sort of hardship in their life that they need help with. And Amber says to me, I really thought I needed to understand predestination. So I came to church. I, I kid you not, right? That's what, okay, sure, right, well, let's meet up. When are you free? Let's, we caught up over the next few weeks and we read the Bible together and we looked through the topic. And after a few weeks, Amber says, this isn't really all that hard, is it? I'm thinking, who are you? You come to church to study predestination and you look at it and you say it's really easy. And she says, you know what I think it means? I think it means that I need to become a Christian. Now, I think predestination, I think Amber. I think a lady who wanted to learn what God has to say and as she learnt, she saw the extraordinary gospel of Jesus. What do you think? Now, I'll tell you, I want to give you a little sneak peek that Ephesians 1.4 is remarkably clear and simple. It is direct in its teaching on the doctrine of election. Now, before we get to Ephesians 1, though, I want to help us think through a couple of unhelpful thought patterns we might find ourselves in. Okay, let me, let me help us think through a couple of things that if we think this way, we will get ourselves into trouble. Now, also to highlight, we will have question time after the sermon. Okay, so if you're going along and you think there are things that I didn't address or things that I say that prompt questions, write a note. We'll talk about them afterwards. Three, th three thought patterns that can be very unhelpful. Here we go. The first one is to undervalue our capacity to understand God's words. To undervalue our capacity to understand God's words. And maybe you've been in a Bible study group for years and time and time again this topic of predestination comes up and really it feels like you're just going around in circles. You never get anywhere, you're just butting heads. Really what we need to do is just put it in the too hard basket. We can't understand it so we shouldn't try. Let's just label it a mystery and move on. We mustn't do that. We mustn't reject our reason. Have you ever heard someone say Christians check their brains in at the door? Well, we mustn't be that. God reveals himself by speaking. He speaks, we hear, and we use our brains to understand his words. Don't undervalue your capacity to understand. And please don't dismiss the word of God as being too hard. 
If it's hard, then it means we've got to work hard at it. Second unhelpful thought pattern is the flip side though, because it's all too easy to overestimate ourselves, to overestimate our capacity to think and to reason. It's impossible to reason your way to God. Left to our own devices, we would never, never think that the way God would save the world was by sending his only son to die for us. You can't reason your way to God. It's not up to us to decide if God is right or wrong. It's not up to us. He's God, we are not. And so if something that we read in Scripture, if something that we see we think is illogical, it's not up to us to say, well, therefore it's not true. As if we are somehow the adjudicators over God. As if God is constrained by our thinking. Similarly, we must never accuse God of something that is immoral. If, if we hear God say something and we think, actually, that's not fair, that's not just, that's not right, that doesn't give us an excuse to say, well, it can't be true. We evaluate God as if our morality could possibly be the judgment of truth. We're, we're a bunch of sinners. We can't tell God what's moral and what isn't. Okay, firstly, don't undervalue your capacity to understand. But secondly, don't overestimate yourself. Third unhelpful thought pattern. All these doctrines, they're just a bit theoretical, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's all well and good for, for people at the colleges to talk about, for the academics to discuss these things. But, but me, I'm, I'm just a practical Christian. I just want to get on with Christian living, right? What, what do I have to learn about the doctrine of election, predestination, adoption we'll do next week, redemption the week after? Again, we mustn't do that either. For good doctrine will result in good practice. How, how can you expect to live God's ways if you don't learn about God? If you don't learn about his revelation of himself, about how he has set up the world and what he tells us about people? We need to know good doctrine which will result in good practice. And I'll tell you, the doctrine of predestination, far from being dry and stale and theoretical, is eminently practical. That just means it has a lot to say to our daily living. As we'll see, if we get predestination, it kind of turns life upside down in all sorts of areas. Now, we'll get there in a bit. All right, let's get to Ephesians chapter 1. So that first reading, uh, if you've got your Bibles there, page 1132 in the Pew Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I hope you took up the challenge from last week. You're starting to memorise these verses. We're only two in. It's easy so far. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And today's verse, for or just as he chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. I must feel like rapping to kind of the... There we go. It was predestined that just before we started the Bible time, they were... I want to tell you four things. Four things from Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Four things about this doctrine of election. The first one is this, that it's true. 
See, who chooses? Does God choose us? Do we choose him? Well, Ephesians 1.4 states that God chooses. There it is, verse 4. For or just as he chose us. They're very simple words. They're very straightforward words. They're common words. There's nothing strange or special or difficult about them. He, God, chose He selected some out of a bigger group, us. Now clearly in this passage, the us must at the very least be Paul and the apostles. And yet Paul will include the Ephesians in verse 13. As they are in Christ by faith, so they are included as well. And so I take it that everybody who by faith is included in Christ is spoken of in that us. God chose us. Stated as a fact. This isn't new language in the Bible either. It's not like God has somehow come up with something new when we get to the New Testament and Jesus. The Old Testament speaks of God choosing Israel. So you can look up Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8 or Deuteronomy 14.2. In both of those passages, it speaks of God choosing Israel. Not because they were the biggest nation, not because they were the prettiest nation, not because they were in any way special, but simply because God wanted to. He said, I made promises to you because I chose to, and so you are my people. And so we get to the New Testament, and in the same way, God chooses his people. Secondly, this passage tells us how God chooses. Now it's those little words that we're tempted to skip over because they're in this passage so many times. For he chose us in him, in Christ, in Jesus. Now this means, I think, at least three things. There's going to be lots of things, so you might want to keep writing numbers to keep track of where we're going. The first one is that there is no election to be found outside of Christ. We heard last week, all of the blessings of God are found in Jesus. There is nothing that you can bring before God that will in any way earn you any sort of merit outside of Jesus. The great Aussie gospel, live a good life, work hard, pay your dues. And then when you get to the end, the big man, well, he'll he'll let you through, right? Fair go, it's the Aussie way. And maybe if you don't quite make it, he'll just bump you the rest of the way. Isn't that... I'm sorry, but if you come before God and you're not in Christ, there is no mercy. You are either in Adam, which every one of us is by being born, or you are in Christ by being born again by becoming one of his. So firstly then, to be in Christ means that you can't find election outside of Christ. Secondly though, it means that Jesus is the mechanism by which God chooses. Jesus is, in other words, it is by Christ that we are chosen. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate it for you. Um, we'll have supper uh, after, after the service. Who's on supper? All right, Sue, excellent. It's going to be good supper. Uh, is there cake of any description? Just biscuits. Excellent. What sort of biscuits? Are they going to be chocolate ones? A variety of biscuits. Good. 
I'm going to go up to the biscuits and I'm going to choose one. I'll, uh, I'll look at them for a little while. I'll decide which one I want. And then I will put my decision, my predetermination as to which biscuit shall be mine into effect. I will reach out and I will take it. In the same way we can speak of God predetermining who will be his and then in Jesus, as by faith people are grafted into Christ, God reaches out and chooses his. Jesus is the mechanism. Election is put into effect in Christ. The third meaning of in Christ means that we are chosen for Jesus, to belong to him. You can look up John 17 or even John 6 that was read for us before. It speaks of God giving to Jesus those whom he chooses. We become Christ's. That's the way in which we are chosen. God gives us to Jesus. Okay. God chose us. God chose us in Christ and nowhere else. Thirdly in this passage, Paul tells us when God chose. Have you ever thought about that? When does God choose? Here we go. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. That's kind of a strange thing to tell us at that point. Why, why tell us that? Why did you include that just there, Paul? Well, it means a number of things. Again, firstly, it means that God is sovereign. It is entirely his decision. It highlights that God is the one in control. Verse 5, we'll see next week, God predestines in accordance with his pleasure and will. He decides, I want that one. Notice that he makes that decision independent of us. Did God choose me because I chose him first? Well, no. He chose me before I existed. Did God choose me because I was good? I was, I was a bit better than everyone else, had a little bit less work to do in me than everyone else? Well, no. God chose me before I existed. Before the creation of the world, God determined who would be his. And I'll tell you, that gives us a lot of confidence, a lot of security in knowing that God is in control. We're not in plan B. It's like in the Garden of Eden, right? God had to go toilet break. It was the day of rest, so he went and had a snooze. Adam and Eve stuffed up while he was gone. He came back and had to put plan B into action. No. Before the creation of the world, God had chosen in Christ, which means that he'd already planned for Christ to die, which means that sin was already... Which God is in control of this world. That means he's in control of our salvation. He's in control of history. God is sovereign. That's the word we use to, to mean in control, sovereign. He determines. He chose before the creation of the world. Sovereign. That's not a shun word. Oh, well. Okay. God chose us. God chose us in Christ. God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. The last thing Paul tells us is why God chose us. He chose us for a purpose. There at the end of the verse, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, I think we often get a bit selfish about our salvation and we talk about it in terms of the benefits to me. Oh, salvation is so that I can have the good life. Salvation is so that I can have blessings. Salvation is so that I can go to heaven. Salvation is, and it's true, all those things are true, but what God, God's purpose in election 
was that he might have holy and blameless people, saved for a purpose, not to kick back and relax, but to be different, to be distinctive from the people around us, even distinctive from our old selves, that transformation pre-Jesus to post-Jesus. Now, in the end, that will come to fruition when Jesus returns, right? We will be holy and blameless before the judgment seat of God in Christ. But it's something that must begin now. Has anyone ever uh, been selected for a soccer team? Anyone selected for a soccer team? Joe's hand, a couple of hands. Okay, there's only a few. Ah, Jared, it wasn't that good a soccer team? Yeah, right. Uh, You missed out, didn't quite make the cut. Cricket team, anyone been selected for a cricket team? No? Oh, Sam, okay, that's even less. I've played cricket once in my life. I have an average of eight, just so you know. You wanted to know that. Uh, okay, can we do any better? Anyone selected for a netball team? Have we got, have we got netball? We've got one, two, three. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. Uh, well, let's run with netball, right, just because it's a bit funnier. Let's run with netball. So you've been selected for the netball team, right? You've got your little skirt ready and your jersey. And then you go out and buy footy boots. And you rock up on the court with your basketball under one arm, you know, the one that they don't let you bounce, and a tennis racket under the other, and people think you're nuts. And you are if you've done that. You play for the team you've been chosen to play for. All right, you rock up on the soccer pitch. All right, here we go. It's the, whatever, what's these, the Gunners, the local team up here. It's the Gunners against somebody who's worse than the Gunners. And you're on the Gunners team and you go on the pitch and you turn around and you play for the other team wearing the jersey of the Gunners. It's just nonsense. You play for the team you're on. We have been chosen to be holy and blameless before God's judgment throne. It is a process that begins now. Lives that are distinctive. holy, separate for God, blameless, perfect. There you go. There's the doctrine of predestination. There's the doctrine of election in one verse. God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Now, I said it was was going to be practical rather than theoretical. So let's let's talk about a couple of applications. I've got three areas at least. I mean, there's plenty more, but here are three. Now, these aren't explicit in this verse, uh, but they are scriptural. So firstly, predestination or the doctrine of election puts us in our place when it comes to humility or arrogance. Have you ever heard Christians spoken of as being very arrogant people? You go, oh, you Christians, you so arrogant. You, you tell me, does this sound humble or arrogant? I am one of God's specially chosen people. Sounds pretty arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, I am one of God's chosen people. You Christians, so arrogant, you think you're so special. The problem is, you, you misunderstand that statement. It's not arrogant at all. It is utterly humiliating. Do you know why God had to choose me? Because I couldn't do a thing for myself. Because I was lost. I was dead. I was a sinner with no hope. I was astray in the street. And God took me in. God didn't choose me because I was special. God didn't choose me because I was better 
or I was better looking, or I was... God didn't choose me because of anything to do with me. In fact, God chose me despite my sinfulness. God chose me when I was his enemy and utterly unlovely. It's not an arrogant statement. It is one of deep humility. There but for the grace of God, there but for the gift of God, go I. Paul puts it this way in the very next chapter, Ephesians 2 and verse 8. He says this, It is by grace or, or by generosity, by a free gift, that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It would be a little bit like the difference between me boasting about my achievements and boasting about my face. Let me explain it. I can boast about my, you know, clearly needs explanation, right? I can boast about my achievements. I've done these things. I've got trophies and right, my cricket score of eight. I got that first innings. I came out. I hit a four off the first ball. The second ball, the other guy got out. All right, so far, I haven't gotten out. Second innings, I was batting number 11, by the way. That'll just tell you how good I am. The second innings came in, first ball, hit a four off it, second ball got out. There's my average of eight, right? Three balls faced. That's my achievement. I can boast about that. But I can't boast about my face. No, yeah, 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 okay, it's very funny. But I can't because I had nothing to do with it. I didn't, I mean, maybe whether I grow my whiskers a bit or not, but my facial features... To, to boast about being God's chosen person would be like to boast about your face. You did nothing. God did it all. It's no cause for arrogance. You know what it is cause for? Praise and thankfulness. Every day. Every day. God, you chose me. Sinner, wretch, lost. You had grace. You were kind. How can we not thank him every day and praise him? That's where we started. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we praise him? Because lost though we were, he chose us. Christians aren't arrogant. We should be humble. Second area of application, evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel. Now, you could say that predestination leads to fatalism. Do you know what fatalism is? It's kind of, well, if everything's already been planned, if God's already chosen who's going to be saved and who's not, then it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, if, if, if I do nothing, God's chosen them, God's going to save them, so we might as well just do nothing and just let whatever God is going to do happen. But again, that misunderstands how God works. How is it that God chooses? We saw it in this passage. How does God choose? In Christ, through his Son, in Jesus. As the gospel of Jesus is preached, as the word of Jesus is spoken to others, and they put their trust in him, God chooses them. Now, it's not about the timing. It's not that they choose, therefore God chooses them. But it's the mechanism by which God chooses is they're putting their trust in Jesus. So what we are called to do is to be faithful in preaching the gospel. To be faithful in praying for those that we know. And do you know what you can do then, after you've spoken about Jesus and you've prayed? You can rest. Because it's not up to you. 
I, 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 it's not to me to convert somebody. In fact, you want to know, I can't convert anyone. I can preach the gospel. I can pray for them. I can be faithful in those things. But it is God who chooses. And so we rest in him. It's so liberating. So liberating. Otherwise, the burden of people's souls would crush us. The burden of people's eternal condemnation would sit upon our shoulders. I don't know how do we get anything done in life. God chooses. We are to be faithful in proclaiming, faithful in prayer, and then trust God. Third area of application, we're nearly done, morality. The desire to live a godly life. See again, right, this fatalism thing. If God's chosen, then it doesn't matter how I live. I can get to the end of my life, not give two hoots about him, and if he's chosen me, well, somehow he's going to have to save me, right? I'm I'm on my deathbed and God's going to have to go, well, I I guess I'm just going to have to save you because I chose you, but... Well, no. You see, if you think that, you've misunderstood salvation. I'll let you in a secret. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't be more saved or more condemned depending on what you do. How you live has got nothing to do with salvation. You don't have to be good to get to heaven. In fact, you can't be good to get to heaven because you can't be good. You know, there's only one prerequisite for salvation. Do you know what it is? Do you know what the one prerequisite for salvation is? that you need saving, that you're a sinner. And I think we've all got that one. We've all got the prerequisite done. We're all sinners. We all need saving. You can't be good. Predestination is not about your morality. It's not about whether you're going to be good enough to get to God or you can just do whatever you want because he's chosen anyway. The reason Christians live holy and blameless lives is because we are saved to be that. We don't live moral lives to be chosen. We live moral lives because we are chosen. You play for the team you're on, right? Paul puts it this way. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You've been called, you've been chosen, you've been saved, so live out that way. In fact, as we'll see it next week, live out the family resemblance. You've been adopted by God. Now live as a son and an heir. Well, there's the doctrine of election. God chooses us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this verse that so clearly, so simply sets out for us that you choose, that who is to be saved is in your hands. Father, thank you that that is utterly humiliating. Not one of us can say, God owes me. Not one of us can say, I am good enough. Not one of us can say, God chose because of who I am. Father, thank you that when we were sinners, when we were far off, when we were dead, that's when you chose us. Father, thank you that in Christ you've made us your own. Help us to trust you when we evangelize, when we share the gospel of Jesus 
Help us to rest knowing that it is your choice. May we be faithful, Father. Preach it faithfully. Speak faithfully. Pray faithfully. And trust in you. And Father, we praise you that you've saved us to be holy and blameless. Thank you that when we come before your judgment throne, you will see Jesus' righteousness, our sin having been placed on him. Begin your work in us now, please, Father, to cut out sin and to bring in godliness. We ask this in Jesus' name.